going to family events and seeing my cousins and their kids sometimes really does make me sad. I wish it didn't make me sad, but I think it does make me sad because I'm a little jealous. I'm like, man, I want to have a family and I want to be able to bring someone to Christmas and um, to have like a significant other to share that with. Reunions at Christmas and the holidays are a little more tense because of things that have already happened. So like now nobody wants to say the wrong thing. So now everybody's holding grudges against people that have said some things and they don't want to say the wrong thing. So they just want to put a front on for the holiday. They just want to get, get it over with, which is, which isn't how I want to spend a holiday. I want, I want people to actually genuinely enjoy each other's time and genuinely enjoy each other's company because we are a family. services but it does make me emotional and I think it is just knowing like a little baby was the savior of the entire world. Good morning church. Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to Union Chapel and to the Advent season. So glad you're here. We've been uh, trying to assist you and thinking about letting go of some things this holiday season, you know, everything gets compressed, time gets compressed, our energy gets compressed, our emotions get compressed, everything is magnified and amplified. Uh, if we took a survey today, there'd be a good number of people in the room who say, Christmas is my favorite holiday of the year, this is my favorite season, I love everything about it, it's wonderful and beautiful, I can't... I can't get enough of it. And then there would be another counter part of the survey which suggests I can't wait until Christmas is over because of the particular emotions and pain and all of the, the relational challenges that come with the season. So I get it. I understand. So we're trying to simplify, trying to uh, unpack a bit, trying to let go of things. Pastor Jeff has launched this series and done a great job t talking about letting go of stuff, you know, get the right perspective on material things, letting go of distractions because there are so many of those in our lives every day. And today I want to talk about a subject that is relevant, pertinent to every one of us. It is the subject of bitterness. Bitterness takes place in our lives when we are offended, when we are wounded, when we are hurt and we let it fester, and it can take root in our lives, our soul. And the scripture is clear. Jesus is very explicit about this. He wants us to destroy bitterness in our lives and not to live with it. So I hope it will be meaningful to you. We've chosen as our text this morning from the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read two verses, 14 and 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project the, project the words on the screen for all of us, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Now hear these encouraging words. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Make every effort. Everyone say every effort. Every effort. Yeah, that's, that's a high bar, isn't it? Let's try everything to live at peace and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15. 
See to it then that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now may God help us get insight into this important subject. You may be seated. Thanks so much. It's obvious that the enemy of our souls, the devil, does everything he can to try to destroy love, corrupt relationships, to erode trust, to hamper our journey. And bitterness is one of the techniques that is used. It happens to us. Sometimes we take offense in the very smallest of things. You know, we send an Instagram post or a text and someone we expected to respond to it or to like it doesn't do so. And maybe it's harmless on their side, but we're not sure. And we, we assume the worst. And, and, you know, you send a text and you're expecting a quick reply and you get the bubbles, you know, the bubbles start bubbling. You go, okay, the, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then pff, the bubbles are gone. Yeah, why didn't they respond to that text? <laughs> Simple little things like that can happen. It's, it's, uh, it's the Christmas meal. You know, you go to Christmas and, and the deal is everyone in the family is supposed to bring a dish for the Christmas meal. And so you show up with your dish or two and you're happy about that. But there's always that one guy in the family. He, he, he never comes with any food. He only brings Tupperware. So at the end of the meal, he's loading up stuff and taking it out. Annoying. Yeah. Sometimes, though, it's an offense that's more real, more significant, more serious. Someone lies to you, deceives you, talks bad about you. People who are always critical of you. The way you raise your kids. The way you spend your money the way you dress, where you go to church. Some of us have family members like that, and they're just constantly attacking. Someone lies to you, deceives you, talks bad about you, takes advantage of you, misleads you, betrays you. Yeah. Let me give you the key thought for the day. I'll put it on the screen. It's on your outline. You might want to write this down. You can't control what people do, but you can control how you respond. Can't control what people do, what they say, what they think, what they do to you. But the good news is, with God's help, with God's grace, you can control how you respond to them. And today's message, I think, is especially timely because there are people in the room right now, all of us indeed, to one degree or another, suffer from the subject of offense and the possibility of bitterness in our lives. And the emotional state that it leaves us in is not good, it's not healthy. And so let's talk about bitterness for a moment. One thing about bitterness I want you to know, it's the first point on your outline. You might like to write this word down. Bitterness has a dangerous root, a dangerous root. A writer in Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. Uh, a mature oak tree, for example, has a root system that we don't see underground. And if you lined a mature oak tree's root system end on end, it would stretch for over a mile. A lot going on under the surface. Let me just remind us, as human beings, we are very complex. We have roots that are unseen. We have issues. We have an internal life. And all of us are very complex. And what we see on the outside isn't always what's going on on the inside. And sometimes a root of bitterness can grow and develop inside of us and can become very destructive. And we should be aware of it. It's dangerous. It's not good. It's not safe. And it's not in our best interest. We've been hurt. We've been mistreated. We've been abused. We've been 
betrayed, maybe simply neglected, and it's left to fester, and it takes root. And so it's dangerous, and we should be aware of it. The deeper it grows, the longer it's allowed to stay, the more difficult it is to remove, to extricate from our lives. It's a dangerous root. Here's number two. Write this down. It's on your outline. Bitterness produces a poisonous fruit. Dangerous root, poisonous fruit. Again, see that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many from our text. The author to the Hebrews knew that one person that is nursing an offense over time can create a collateral impact on the people and the world around him. See to it that a bitter root does not grow in your life because it will cause trouble. It will defile many. If you've, uh, if you've been in a small group, a small fellowship circle in the life of the church for any length of time, you've probably discovered that one person with a root of bitterness can, can disrupt the whole group. You've discovered in many of your families that one person with a root of bitterness can divide a family. Happens. Some of you, it's in the workplace. And a person with a root of bitterness makes your work environment utterly miserable. Happens every day. Some of you are thinking right now about people you know who need to hear this sermon. You're, you're thinking about those folks. As I use those illustrations, you're thinking, how can I get them to hear this sermon? Maybe I can link them to the, you know, the website and get them to listen in. Let me just say this very carefully and very firmly. Listen to me carefully. Bitterness is the hardest sin to see in a mirror. We can see it in others. Man, that guy's bitter. She's a mess. She's so angry. But it's hard to see it in ourselves. And the reason it's hard to see in ourselves is because we tend to justify our own bitterness and unforgiveness. Because, I mean, what happened to us, that was really serious. What that person did to me, that was wrong. And so we justify our own bitterness because, after all, I deserve to be bitter after what they did. And so over time, we not only justify it, but we become accustomed to it. It becomes a companion in our lives. We can't imagine living without it. We wake up every day going, oh yeah, and there's that bitterness that I carry with me. And some folks do this for years and years, decades on end. It could be that brown noser coworker that sets you off, or your boss, or your spouse that doesn't lift a hand to help around the house. Many people are embittered toward themselves. Are you in this category? Filled with regret, self-loathing, resulting from poor choices, failures. Our root of bitterness is directed toward ourselves. For others, that destructive root is focused on God. Lots and lots of people have a root of bitterness toward God himself. Yeah, angry with him, feel like he disappointed them or disillusioned them. You're bitter. It's eroded your intimacy with Christ and a meaningful faith. It's like a, it's like a brick wall that keeps you from any kind of intimacy with God because of it. Yeah. And so what we need to do in a moment like this is admit it. Come to terms with it. Bitterness is a challenge that all of us face from time to time. Look on the screen with me at Ephesians chapter 4. This gives us some guidance now about how to respond to it. Get rid of all bitterness. Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ, God has forgiven you. 
Now, so there's some perspective. So point number three is this is how we kill bitterness. Let's get to some practical ways to deal with it. Number three is kill bitterness with compassion. With compassion. Now that's what Ephesians 4 reminds us. And so now we're hearing that bitterness is a root and it's, and it's dangerous and it's destructive. And now here's the antidote to it. Here's the, here's the cure to bitterness. And that is to express compassion to the persons who have offended you. Now, I know what's being created right now. This creates tension. This creates some pushback. Let me, let me just, uh, let me just uh, remind you that, that the tension we feel is based on the justification of carrying this bitterness. The severity of the wound justifies in our mind, we can rationalize in our mind that it's okay to be upset with that person, unforgiving, bitter toward that person because of what they did, the severity of it. But now we're hearing that the, that the remedy, the, the cure for bitterness is to extend compassion to someone. Now, let me just remind you of something. In the kingdom of God, in the will and ways of God, listen to me very carefully. Oftentimes, we might even say just about all the time, the cure or the response that we need to a certain thing in our lives is exactly opposite of our natural instinct. Our human tendency, our human nature is wired to respond one way, but almost all the time, maybe all the time, the best way, the right way, the way is completely opposite from our instinct. This is what makes me nervous when I hear people say, well, I just follow my heart and I do what I, what I just feel like I should. You just want to get a flag and say, no, you know, get one of those big blow horns. Stop doing that. It's crazy. Jesus came along one day and he said, now listen, occasionally someone's going to slap you in the head. I go, I, res- I relate to that. That's happened to me. And I, and I know my natural response to that. And the reason I know my natural response when I get smacked in the head is because I've seen my response. I've seen me do it. Most of the times in my life when people have smacked me in the head, you know what I've done? Smacked them in the head. I mean, it just comes natural to me. It's almost like I, I must have been born this way. I didn't have to stop and think about it. I didn't need to pray about it. I didn't need to get counsel about this. I just knew immediately the right thing to do. Smack them back. <laughs> Jesus comes along. And he says, look, if someone smacks you on one side of the face, turn and let them smack you on the other side of the face. Now, what kind of advice is that? <laughs> that doesn't fit. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem right. That's not just. That's not fair. Why in the world? Just the opposite of our instinct is the better way. Jesus said, you want to be great? Hey, you, you want to be great? Well, anyone who has asked the question, you want to be great? Folks said, well, yeah, I want to be great. Who doesn't want to be great? Yeah, I want to be important. I want to be, I want to be influential. I want to make a difference. Yeah, I want to be great. I want to get noticed. I want to be great. Jesus said, perfect. You want to be great? Then become the servant of everyone. 
You want to, if you want to be at the top of greatness, you have to be the bo- at the bottom as a servant. What is going on? What's going on? This doesn't, this doesn't fit. This doesn't resonate. This doesn't go along with the world in which we live. This isn't what we were told if you want to be great. What we're told in the world is if you want to be great, you got to climb. You got to climb up. And sometimes you got to climb over. If you, happen to, if you need to step on someone's head climbing up, then, you know, too bad. That's how you become great. Jesus comes along. No, no. No, no. Just the opposite. So he says, if you want to kill the root of bitterness, that resentment, that unforgiveness, that offense, that's not going to work. Carrying that around is not going to work. He says, here's what you got to do. You have to love the person who hurt you. You got to extend compassion toward them. Are you sure, Lord? Yeah. That's the way. That's the step. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, compassionate to one another. Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the way I I play it out in my mind because this is not easy for me. I have already confessed to you that I, I have a very natural carnal nature. I have an instinct that goes opposite to best best kingdom practice. And so this is how I play it out in my mind. I'm not going to let the weakness in another person overcome my strength. If someone in their weakness and their own woundedness offends me or hurts me, and this is what happens, friends, hurt people hurt people. Most of the time I've discovered the people that have wounded me the most severely in my life I didn't even know they did it. That's most of it. The, the people that I would tend to think about on a regular basis who's, who've offended me, they're not thinking about me at all. They don't care about me. They care about themselves, just like most people. So why should I let the weakness of another person overcome my Christian virtue? My character in Christ. My strength. So don't let the weakness of another person overcome your strength. That's how I play it out in my mind. Why would I, why would I let their weakness overcome me? And so what's it look like to be the stronger of the two? What, what strength looks like is I'm going to extend compassion to them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to bless them. That takes strength. No, no. You, you better be a grown-up for that. Because that's what's required. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Jesus asks of us. As you know, we live in a culture now that's suffering with addiction. The devastation of drug addiction in our own community, in our own area, is epidemic. Virtually everyone in this room could tell a story of a family member or a friend or a close association who struggles with addiction, particularly drug, alcohol addiction. Let me tell you two stories, and this relates to our Christmas offering, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. We take up one special offering every year at Union Chapel. Not two, not three. We take up one. One special offering every year. It's at Christmas. We do it at Christmas because, uh, after all, Christmas is not our birthday. It's about Jesus, and the, the right impulse around Christmas is to be generous toward people who are less fortunate than us. And so we take up an offering at Christmas. We... uh 
we uh, will be receiving this offering on three occasions, the Saturday and Sunday of the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of December, just before Christmas, and then on Christmas Eve, we'll also receive an offering that all of that goes to our Christmas offering. Now let me uh, describe to you a portion of what we're going to designate this year for the offering. Two stories. One is about a year ago, more or less, a man approached me after one of our services. I could see that he was distraught. He introduced himself to me. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. And he asked if he could share with me about his son. I said, go ahead. He told me about his son. And he described this blue chip kid. You know, a great kid, popular in school, good student, athletic, on his way to college, bright future. You know, great guy. And then this father uh, began to cry. Tears welled up and spilled down his face. And he looked at me and he said, my son is now a heroin addict and he's lost and we don't know what's going to become of him. And then this father looked at me and he said, in a pleading tone, characterize it as pleading, I, I could say in a begging tone, was very impassioned. He said, please, please do more to help people in recovery. Please do more. Now, as a pastor, uh, part of the job description is that you hear people's stories and you carry burdens. People are constantly unloading their stories, and that's the pastoral role. You know, get it. And God gives me grace to do what he's called me to do, just like he gives you grace. And, and so sometimes people share a story, and it's a burden, and I carry it for a little while, but, but I don't carry it all the time. That guy's story burdened me, and I've been carrying it ever since. I just can't shake it. So I carry it around. Second story. About three weeks ago, we were in our staff meeting here, which we have weekly at Union Chapel. We had a team of people at a table, and, and we began to talk about this subject of our community and, and the recovery needs. And we have more and more people associating with our church now who are in recovery, have been in recovery, uh, who do recovery ministries and provide recovery services. There, there's a growing constitution of people here at Union Chapel around the subject, and as members of the staff, we are associated and know these people, and we were telling different stories about. And as we talked about that, uh, there are times in your life, and maybe you've experienced this as a follower of Jesus, that you sense God kind of stirring the subject. In other words, you feel a growing sense of responsibility about that, or a sense of call, you know, that God's asking us to do something about that. I've had this from time to time in my life, and I began to have that experience a few weeks ago in our staff meeting. I just thought, what is going on? This is, this is more than just a conversation. It, you know, God's presence kind of settled down in the middle of it. So we determined that we were going to start educating ourselves around this subject, and so for the last three weeks we've been doing that, and we've taken a road trip to another community where there's a specialized ministry there for recovery, and we've talked to individuals, and we've had interviews with other folks and, and connected with some of the institutions in town, that sort of thing. And so we're getting a general picture at this point of 
of the spectrum of, of groups, agencies, individuals, churches that are addressing the subject of recovery. It's a huge thing. You remember last year, part of our offering for the Christmas was Brianna's Hope. You know, it's one of the recovery ministries in our area doing a great job with support groups and, and educating kids in schools. And we had a great response to that. It's all good. We have a counseling center. We have some addiction recovery specialists there. And we have some support groups to, that are ongoing. So we, we've engaged the issue uh, from time to time. But now it seems that God is getting us more intentional about this. We're still trying to figure out what God's asking us to do. We have discovered, however, that in the process of recovery, there's a missing piece, at least, in the local community's effort in this regard. And it's, a, it's the piece that, that is in the, in the transition portion. A person has been through recovery, and now they're sober, they're getting their feet on the ground, and they're ready to take next steps, you know, to get a job or to maintain a job or to reintroduce themselves into the into mainstream and to move on successfully. That transition piece, that link in the chain is missing in Muncie, Delaware County. There's a couple of models of it, but it's not adequate. So we're learning these things. And as a result of that, we have decided to make as a focus of this year's Christmas offering, um, a gathering of resources to address that at some point. Look at this screen. Just look at some numbers with me just for a moment. This is 2017. It's the most updated numbers we could find. 1,118 recorded deaths in Indiana that year. 816 overdose calls made to 9-11 in Delaware County that year. 621 doses of Narcan administered in Delaware County. 81 deaths in 2017 from overdose in Delaware County. It's, it's an epidemic. It's, it's serious, and you, we all know it. Now, so here's what we're going to do with our Christmas offering this year, and these are the designations. We have traditionally funded Blood and Fire's Christmas store. That, this services 200-plus families every year who normally wouldn't get Christmas, and, and we provide that for them. Beautiful ministry there, and we'll designate the first 10000 to the Christmas store. Light Their Path Children's Bibles. This is one of our small groups who started this ministry, <laughs> distributing children's Bibles a few years ago. Thousands of Bibles to, have been distributed to children. This next year, we'll send some to Kazakhstan, and this summer, some children's Bibles to Ecuador, as well as hundreds of children in our own community. So we're designating uh, 4,000 for that. And so this third piece is the strategic recovery support. We're designating 50,000 for that. And the reason that, that we can't be more specific is because we're just not sure what the partnership will look like, what the engagement will look like. But I want to start building some assets, a war chest, if you will, for this category so that when God makes clear what we're to do and engage and partner, we will have tangible capital assets to bring to, the, to that conversation. This is what we do at Union Chapel. <laughs> we, we, we bring meaningful, tangible activity to our community. I've been in the community now for 40 years, and I've discovered this to be true, that there are many well-meaning people, this is probably true in any community, who think a lot of good ideas are good ideas, but they, they major in talking about it and not so much in doing something about it. And that's just not the way we move. 
And so we want to start accumulating some, some assets, some resources. So when that serious conversation comes up, yeah, we've already talked to people in the community. Yeah, we, this is a missing link. This is an important step. This transitional, maybe residential kind of ministry is deeply needed in our community and other agencies and people are thinking about it and strategizing around it, trying to figure it out. And the problem is it costs money. So everybody thinks it's a wonderful idea, but very few people are willing to bring tangible asset to, the, to address the problem. So we want to start building some funds in this regard. Our total goal then is 64000 with those three categories. We've averaged out the last four years of Christmas offerings at Union Chapel. It's right at $65,000. That's been the average. So it's a doable goal. Please forgive me if you think it's too low. Maybe you're moved by this whole idea and you want to be even more generous than you've been in the past. That's perfect. That's great. But this will be our goal, and we'll hit this goal and, maybe, and exceed it if we can. But I wanted you to be aware of what we're doing so you can be praying about it, asking God about your part in our Christmas offering this year. And I know God will bless you for it. So what do we know? What do we know? We know that what the enemy means to destroy us in bitterness, in addiction, in despair, whatever it is the enemy wishes to subject us to in a disabilitating, disabilitating, destructive way, what we know is that God, who is a redeeming God, wants to turn that around. He wants to flip it upside down or right side up. God will take what the enemy has used in an attempt to disrupt your life and keep you from God's very best plan for your life. And he will meet you at the point of your need, at the point of your addiction, at the point of your pain, at the point of your dysfunction, at the point of your bitterness. And he will bring wholeness to your life. He will heal you if you will follow his plan. And he will flip it completely around. Your life will not only be transformed so that you personally find healing, but he will then use your life in redemptive ways in the lives of others. And so we find ourselves with a great opportunity in the life of, the, of, of our community. And while we talk about bitterness today, there are all the other issues that are out there that we can have a redemptive presence and influence in. Jesus said it best, it's Luke 6, 20, 6 He said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So, so we kill bitterness with compassion. We no longer are part of the problem. Now we become part of the solution. And we do that by blessing those who have cursed us and praying for those who mistreat us. And again, this is the opposite of our instinct. But this is the best way. And what, what we've discovered and what we know is that one of the greatest forms of compassion is to pray for someone who's done something really terrible to you. And what I've discovered in my life, you'll probably discover in your life, is that the people that have, that have uh, wounded my, me and, and tempted me to become bitter, as I have prayed for them and blessed them, I've discovered something that you can watch for. It very rarely has any effect on them. You're praying for them. You're blessing them. God, help them to receive your love. Help them to see your care for them. Uh, bless their lives. Very rarely do I see them find healing. But I always experience healing myself. 
So the people you're blessing and praying for may not change at all. But you will be profoundly changed. This is the way. This is the way. So you kill bitterness with compassion. And then lastly, last point, write this down. You kill bitterness with forgiveness. You kill it with forgiveness. Yeah. You say, you have no idea what they did to me. I know. I know. You're right. I don't. But God does. God knows. And so Paul writes again, Ephesians 4. Let's look at it again. Get rid of all bitterness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ, God has forgiven you. And remember, you're not generating something from nothing. It's not like you've got to come up with forgiveness and extend it to people because you already know forgiveness. You already have received forgiveness. You already have felt the therapeutic effect of being forgiven. You know, Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood and died, not for his sins, but for your sins and mine. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and suffered the shame, not for his own benefit, but for ours. So we have been the beneficiaries of this magnificent expression of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And so the mandate now to us is as we have received so unconditionally and generously the love and forgiveness of God, we now ought to express it to others. This is, this is, this is not easy to do, but it is the right and good thing to do. To forgive. Yeah, so we trust God's forgiveness. You may have to face uh, someone sitting across the table at Christmas meal <laughs> from a person and everything in you wants to remind them of what they did to you. That'll be true for someone I'm talking to right now. How do you take steps to forgive that person? Let me be as practical as I can with this story, and then we'll be done. One of my favorite saints um, in my lifetime was a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Some of you who are older will remember that name, Corey Ten Boom. She was uh, born in Amsterdam, Holland in 1892 on April 15. She died on her birthday in 1983 at 91 years old. But this was her story in the meantime. She was from a family of watchmakers. She and her dad, Casper Ten Boom, were watchmakers. And her sister, Betsy, and other family members during World War II in Amsterdam during the Nazi Holocaust would hide Jewish people in their home and also uh, mentally handicapped persons who were also being targeted by the Nazis for extermination. And they had a special room that they, that they had concealed in their home and they were hiding J Jewish people there. Corey subsequently wrote a book, a best-selling book called The Hiding Place, depicting this story. Well, the Nazis finally discovered what they were doing and they arrested them. And Corey and her sister Betsy were sent from one prison to another and they finally ended up in the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, where Betsy's health steadily declined until at the age of 59, she died on 16 December 1944 at Ravensbrück. Just before she passed, <clears throat> 
Some of her final words to Corey were these, and listen. She said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. You can hang on to that. Fifteen days after Betsy died, Corey Tinboom was released from Ravensbrook. She discovered subsequently that the reason she was released was a clerical error. And one week after she was released, all of the women in her age category were sent to the gas chamber. It was almost as if God said, you can have all of those, but you can't have Corey. I have special plans for her. And Corey then lived her life in Christian ministry, writing this bestseller, The Hiding Place, other books. This uh, book, The Hiding Place, was produced into a movie. It's a notable life. Some years after the, world, uh, the Second World War, Corey was ministering in a local church in the Netherlands. And at the end of the service where she had been ministering, telling her story, a man walked up to her with a smile on his face to greet her in Christian fellowship. And he stretched out his hand to her like this. He did not recognize her, but Corey immediately recognized him. He had been one of the guards at Ravensbrook who had brutalized her and, her and her sister. And now he's standing right in front of her, extending a hand of fellowship. Can you feel that? Can you feel the tension of that? Corey reflected later and she, and she said, I immediately got in touch with lingering bitterness that was in my heart. She knew what this man had done. She loathed him for it. But in that moment, she had a decision to make. How will I respond? I'm aware of my bitterness, but how do I respond? And she said after just a, a moment or two, she decided to reach out her hand. Now that was a troubling experience for her. And so she went, went away from it and devoted her times of prayer to asking God for his grace to help her overcome her bitterness. And one day while she was praying, God brought to her mind a beautiful memory from her past. She grew up in a little Dutch Reformed church in the Netherlands, and it had a bell tower. And as a small child, she and her friends would go early on Sunday morning to church where the rector would meet them there, and the rector would actually lift them up so they could grab the rope on the church bell, and, the, and their weight would pull the rope down, and they'd get, their feet would land on the ground, and they would spring back up, and the weight of the bell would pull them back up in the air, and the bell would begin to toll. And, they, and she said it was the most delightful experience. The children, we would just giggle and have the best time ringing the church bell. Until finally, he's, she said, the, the rector would say, okay, that's enough ringing. And so you have to let go of the rope. And she would let, she said the rector would let them down to the ground safely. And then they would watch the rope and it would still spring up and down as the bell continued to sound. And she said, immediately after you let go of the rope, she said it would sound loudly. 
But as the momentum of the bell swinging became less and less, the sound of the bell, the tolling of the bell would become less and less until finally there was no sound. And then God spoke to Corey. He said, forgiveness begins by letting go of the rope. This is when you identify that person or that season or that experience that you've held in bitterness in your heart and you let them go. So let it go. She said, I discovered that forgiveness is a process. That you make a decision at a certain point, like a, like a day like today, a service like this one. When you make a decision to willfully, volitionally let that person go. I know. I know they deserve to be judged. You don't feel good about letting them go. You, you, it's not right to let them go. It's not just to let them go. It's not fair to let them go. There's nothing about it that's right. And yet, this is the mandate. Let go. Let go. She said there would be times... In the future, after she had made a decision to forgive that man and the other people who had brutalized her and her family, and she said a thought would be made or a word would be heard or a special circumstance and it would remind her of those moments and she would have a little twinge. But she said as time passed, the pain became less and less, just like the tolling of the bell. And so the first step, the baby step, the practical step in forgiveness. Let it go. Let go. Let go of the rope. Could I encourage you to let go of things this season? Things that keep you from God's best. And today, let go of your bitterness. Let's pray. Lord, remind us that we have committed sins every one of us. We did it last week. We did it yesterday, maybe the hour before we walked into this room. We need the forgiveness of Jesus. Lord, how can we receive what Jesus gives us with, and withhold it from others? I wonder how many of you, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, but you're not free, and you know it. You're imprisoned to a memory, an offense, Listen, friend, today you can relive it, you can rehearse it, or you can just release it. Turn loose of it. Someone once said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was me. So I pray, God, by your Holy Spirit, set us free today. God, we come to you deeply aware of what's been done to us. And yet, God, we ask that you would give us by your Spirit the ability the grace, the courage to release the other from their debt to us. God set hearts free. Now, I imagine there's a lot of emotion for some of you right now. There's some of you, you hear that you know that this bitterness is like a wall in your faith. And until this root of bitterness is killed, it's excavated, it's destroyed, you're never going to find peace. 
Let me, let me pray for you. I'll say the words. You, you pray these quietly in your own heart. I'll say the words. God, I need you to heal this offense that I've carried for a really, really long time. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would heal wounded hearts. Help us then to have the capacity to release those who we hold a debt. Allow us to release them. Allow us to forgive them. God, today we let go of the rope. We let go of our bitterness. And in so doing, God, set us free. In Jesus' name. Now, if that prayer was meaningful to you, say amen. Would you stand with us?